In countries with less mature democracies, civic engagement can be low, trust in government weak, and the gears that make the public sector turn are rusty. Now, the common citizen is not the only stakeholder invested in making government work well. Government officials themselves want to make sure their peers are following the rules and responding to citizens' concerns. Some countries have attempted to adopt reforms called mandatory participation. So Stephanie McNulty of Franklin and Marshall College focuses on, in her forthcoming book, Democracy from Above, The Unfulfilled Promise of Nationally Mandated Participatory Reforms. In this particular case, we're talking about government officials opening new institutions to um, actually allow participation, but the institution itself is mandatory. So um, a national government will pass a law to create participatory institutions in local and state governments. So each local and state government has to have this particular institution in their locality. Um, Citizen participation itself is not mandatory, but at least allowing for citizen participation is mandatory. To be clear, this doesn't mean that citizens themselves need to participate. It's just that institutions need to be set up at a state and local level. The kind of institutions that I personally have been researching for a while now is national governments telling subnational governments like cities or states that they have to have these participatory institutions. And the institutions themselves take on a variety of forms. It can be participatory budgeting. It can be citizen councils. It can be participatory planning. There's sort of a... a, a an array of the kinds of institutions that are mandated. But again, the mandated part is from the national government to the local or state governments. Go back to the last time you took a civics class in school. Think about the theoretical merits that support democracies. You know, the stuff that leads democracies to make us better off. Basically, I would go back to theory about participatory democracy, which is pretty optimistic about participatory institutions in general. A lot. So there's several arguments that are made about the benefits of any sort of participatory democratic institution. Some people argue that it's a school of democracy, for example. So people get together and learn about the way government and democracy works. Other people have argued that it kind of creates these bonds of solidarity and and more of networks, like social networks. Um, I mostly focus on the the larger level type outcomes that could come out of this kind of institution. Uh, one of the the theoretical hypotheses would be that governments should perform better because if citizens are coming into these meetings or forums or organizations and telling the government what they want, then the government in theory, should respond more um, adequately to citizen demands. So improved government performance is one of the outcomes that theory would expect. Um, Another idea is about citizenship, just increasing the political participation. Participatory democracy is best when it's ongoing. Uh, People are allowed to participate more regularly than every four years or every two years through an election. And so the idea is that you would have new people participating, maybe have new voices, people who tend to be marginalized by the political systems. Um, And I guess the last thing, theoretically, that we might look for would be reduced corruption. And for example, if you have a 
participatory democratic institution, then the citizens learn more about government, are making decisions, and then have more of a stake in making sure that those decisions are executed. And so there'd be more oversight or monitoring of their government officials. So all of this is sort of, in theory, what we might expect to see from some of these institutions. When we think of democracy in a lot of higher income countries, what we envision is representative democracy, not participatory democracy. What this means is that we tend to use democratic methods to elect people who will make decisions for us, but usually the actual decisions themselves aren't made by the common voter. In countries with not as much democratic history, it's a slightly different flavor of democracy. In general, when I teach the idea of democracy to my students, for example, I talk about exactly what you said, that um, you can talk about representative democracy, you can talk about participatory or direct democracy. Um, of course, the you know the U.S. has mostly representative democracy. We elect representatives on a regular basis to represent us in the political institutions. Participatory democracy. I mean, there are examples. The original, you know. Greek city-state was a participatory democracy. Every citizen, and I use citizen and like quote-unquote citizen, right, because citizens were only people who um, held land, were literate, were male, right? So, so citizens was defined very, um, very narrowly, but in that city-state system, each citizen had a voice in their political process right? So the concept of participatory democracy goes back to the original birth of democracy. Um, now it has evolved to, in, to include many kinds of, of institutions like a referendum or recall or even like the town hall tradition in New England. But the kinds of institutions that I study are, are they're called participatory governance and it, they're sustained, right? They're sustained over time. So there's an annual process. There's an um, ongoing process where average citizens are given decision-making power in their political um, process. So often in many of the countries that had new democracies, like in the 80s and the 90s, they, they had this realization that having elections every four years really wasn't an in solving a lot of the problems that they had hoped democracy would solve, like all the, all, you know, the creating bonds of solidarity, uh, improving government performance, increasing political participation, right? So, so the, the, the discourse in places like Guatemala and Bolivia and Peru and so in all of these countries, the discourse started to um, revolve around would the would can we combine representative and participatory democracy in a way that actually does help us get some of these um, important outcomes from the political system? So, how successful have these laws been in strengthening democracy? Yeah, so that's a super that's a really good question, and of course, because I'm a professor, I could go on and on about this. <laughs> and the whole book is about this particular question. Because I think it's really important to think about what, um, you know, are these institutions achieving their goals? Are they improving democracy? Are they, you know, improving governmental performance, right? So that's the big uh, question that we all need to, to think about. And, and of course, as you mentioned, it varies, right? It's complex and the, um, the results have varied in different countries. The one overarching finding that I have about 
most of the countries is that, in fact, more citizens are participating in the political system, right? I mean, and that seems like a pretty basic finding. You would hope that at least that is happening, but at least, you know, you can't assume that that's going to happen, right? So in le- what I saw over and over again is that more people are showing up, more people are engaged in the political system, right? And so that that especially you would see the fruits of that kind of participation at the local level or at the regional level, because this is not about national level politics, right? This is really about local, local politics. Um, beyond that, the kinds of things that will make it more probable that you're going to see some of the positive outcomes would be you have to have government officials who support this idea of combining participatory democracy with representative democracy. A lot of elected officials, especially in the countries that I'm talking about in my book, which would be considered the developing world, um, a lot of elected officials are not that excited about giving citizens power over their decision-making, right? (laughs) So, and I actually, I suspect that could be true in the U.S. and Europe as well, but that's just, I mean, I didn't talk to those elected officials. So a lot of elected officials I talked to said, well, look, I'm elected to do my, to put put into place my ideas, my political platform. So why would I then go and consult all of these citizens or citizens organizations about how to do my job? Right. So there's a little bit of pushback there. And you really have to have government support for this to work. You also have to have the government making or giving the process some resources, giving citizens some resources to actually um, decide how to use, right? So the government has to give its support both sort of ideologically or theoretically or philosophically and in like tangible ways like time and resources. The other um, aspect that that I found would helps is if your civic groups, the existing civic groups are relatively active and engaged or organized organized or at least organized enough to go ahead and, and, and get people out into these new opportunities. If you don't have um, much of a social fabric in a community or much of what we call civil society, it's going to be really hard to you know create these institutions and just let people come, right? You have to really have a certain, there's certain conditions on the ground that are going to help are going to facilitate the more positive outcomes. Um, so having some sort of organizational fabric in the community is going to help as well. So those are the two main ways that will, or the two main factors that would facilitate the more positive outcomes. Unfortunately, in most of the cases I was studying, a lot of those factors didn't necessarily exist. So we didn't see a lot of the positive outcomes. Hearing this idea that increasing democracy is most effective when the conditions are already right makes me think of the track record of foreign aid and economic development. To some economists, for foreign aid to spur economic growth, a bunch of ingredients need to be right. Rule of law, contract enforcement, basic infrastructure, trust, etc. But those are also ingredients that, at present, will cause an economy to grow without any foreign aid. Is it possible that imposing democracy from the top down has the same performance? Does it work only when the conditions are already right? You know, I teach classes on international development. I worked in an international development organization, and I had that same realization that 
you know, we can do a lot, but it's really hard to get the most marginalized voices or the very poorest um, sectors of society to reach them through these initiatives, right? These these large, almost, you know, top-down initiatives. And that's exactly what's happening here. A, you're exactly right, that some baseline conditions are are going to make it more probable and and feasible that we get the kind of outcomes that the reformers want, but also that it's really hard to get the most marginalized voices in any geographic area to engage in any political system, right? And that's what, you know, organizers and community organizers are grappling with on a daily basis around the nation right now. The conditions that would even lead to governments passing mandatory democracy laws must also affect the outcomes. For example, in the 1980s, after the military ruled Brazil for decades, the country transitioned to be more democratic. This coincided with a massive shift in the whole way the country approached government, and in many ways, society. Brazil's a super interesting case when it comes to participatory democracy, um, and I think it's sort of a paradigmatic case in many ways. And, and, and so you have, imagine Brazil, um, late 1980s, a new democracy, uh, and the new constitution. And again, there had been a huge effort to um, empower citizens through the constitution and also the subsequent legislation that comes out in this newly democratized nation. Another big push in that same period is to decentralize, like to create a more more powerful federal system in Brazil. The military government had sort of re-centralized all the resources and power, so they needed to push that back out to the states in Brazil. And so you have this sort of new constitution and a new democracy that was really stressing participatory democracy. And you have these different examples of participatory institutions popping up around the country for about 10 years. Um, and then, so, so I, what I would say, though, is that you can now look at Brazil's politics and see that, you know, it's still one of the most corrupt nations in the world, right? It has a lot of political instability. So you have all of these exciting participatory institutions all over these states in the, at the local level, but that never scales or leverages up to uh, affect um the, the national level scenario. The history of Peru also paints an interesting setting of what would lead a country to enact mandatory democracy laws. In terms of the specific institutions, um, the country that I've spent the most time in is Peru. And from the beginning, when I started doing my research as a graduate student, I was fascinated with Peruvian um, democratization after Alberto Fujimori stepped down. He was, he was pushed, he was, he actually resigned, believe it or not, but then Congress impeached him <laughs> while well, he was he he was in Japan. He he left the country, flew to Japan and resigned. And so um, but then he was impeached because he was incredibly corrupt. Um, and so the country is at this moment, right, right around 2000, where everyone is so mad and so sick of corruption in Peru that the. Um, the, a series of laws come out to promote participatory democracy in Peru. Um, and one of the ones that I've always been most fascinated with is that it's, it's mandating participatory budgeting. So participatory budgeting gives the citizen groups a voice in the way their local and state budgets will be allocated, right? Um, 
And so mandated participatory budgeting became sort of popular for a while in a couple of other countries, but it's actually fallen out of favor for all of the issues that we've talked about. It just doesn't work when it's top down. It needs to be more like bottom up. Another, um, Another kind of institution that I think is really interesting are are called policy council systems or development planning council systems. And Brazil has a policy, a national policy council system, and Guatemala also has a national development planning council system. And so this sets up citizen councils or civil society councils in every level of government to call citizens to meetings and ask them to debate and vote on what the priorities for that government should be for the next year, right? So maybe in Guatemala, if you're part of a a city um, and you're on the city council piece of that system, you would meet with the mayor every year and all of you all would give a list of like 10 priorities. Like we want to fund this, 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 and this, right? And so that's another example of the kinds of uh, systems or institutions that have been adopted around the different countries that I've been researching. Is there anywhere we can look for positive results for mandatory democracy laws? Uh, I, I would say that what I've started to see is national governments still passing these laws, but not mandating that the government does that the, that the local governments do it, but incentivizing this. And so instead of saying you have to do this, they say if you decide to invite citizens to have a voice and a vote in how your local government decisions are made, we will give you, you know, X. We will give you more money. We will give you more resources, right? So the national government is still incentivizing participatory institutions, but not um, mandating them. And I think that has a lot more promise when you look at the same countries. That's happening, um, for example, in Colombia. I know that's starting to happen. Um, I'm trying to think. I can't think offhand of other countries, but I've seen it more and more as I think a pretty nice way to overcome the tension between mandating and trying to make people participate. Um, There are, I mean, I think also the other thing I would stress is that I'm looking at issues from a national perspective, but when you get into certain cities, there's super exciting things happening, right? So even New York City right now, actually, don't you live in New York City? Yeah. So I don't know. Do you ever hear about participatory budgeting? Because I think 26 of the city council members or something, I can't remember exactly how New York City is organized, but many of the... um, the city council members have started to use participatory budgeting to make decisions about how their investment spending or infrastructure spending will take place. So that's been, you know, it's kind of a dynamic thing happening around New York. It's been happening around Chicago as well. And I I think where you get into more of the positive cases is looking at it at like the individual case level, what I call the micro level in the book. So the different cities where really exciting things are happening. Um, my particular research agenda is to explore the national level issues, which are a little less um, optimistic, but I still think that there's a lot of cool things happening. Forget all the theory about why democracies will be great and wonderful, and think about all the ways it can be just as bad as any other form of government. Democracies need people to be informed to thrive. Otherwise, incomplete understanding of issues will just project right back onto the government. So on the information piece, the participatory budgeting process 
a big piece of the process is educating the people in the room about what is a budget? How is the budget? How is a governmental budget made? What are infrastructure projects, right? And so if it's done well, there should be an educational piece. And that's why a lot of advocates call these institutions schools of democracy. Citizens are often learning a lot about how government works and how government officials make really tough choices, right? So a lot of government officials in the U.S. like like participatory budgeting right now because they've all been facing cutbacks and they don't like to have to cut back services. So if they have an open forum, where citizens are invited, and by citizens in the U.S., I should say residents, because we use I use the term citizens very loosely because of my work abroad. But you know, any usually they're inviting any resident of a neighborhood or a um, a part of New York City, and any resident can come vote. But it doesn't work well if the resident is not educated and trained about what the budget process is. Right. So this is a key piece of any of these institutions. Now. In many, and I, I don't think this would necessarily happen in the U.S., but in many of the countries that I've, I've visited, um, you're exactly right. Government officials are able to use these so-called participatory meetings, which are not very participatory and not very well attended, to legitimize their own decisions, right? And so they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, okay, so I'll give you an example. In Peru last year, I was observing a participatory budgeting meeting, and clearly the mayor really wanted to work on um, security, and, and, and that's fine. I mean, I think a lot of the citizens probably wanted to work on security, and they were going to I mean, it became really clear to me in the very first meeting that they were sort of priming the pump. Like, wouldn't it be great if we had this and that and, you know, cameras and more bikes for our security officers? And and so in my mind, I thought, well, okay, so they're going to have these open meetings and let people propose projects and vote on projects. But then at the end of the day, they're probably going to mostly fund what they want to fund, which is (laughs) security cameras and bikes, which is a perfectly good use of, you know, taxpayer money. But there, and then, you know, it's like, it turns out that it's actually easy to kind of steal from a lot of these smaller, like camera type purchases. So, you know, if someone was like, well, this is just corruption, you're just, you know, stealing from the government, they could say, hey, this is what the the citizens voted on. This is what they wanted, right? So it really does under the wrong, under the, under the, um, less favorable conditions, it really opens up the door for more clientelism, more populism, and more corruption. Democracies can be great at encouraging civic participation, holding elected officials accountable, and reflecting the will of the people. But laws enacted to set up democracy from the top down are trickier than you might think. This episode of Upset Patterns was hosted by Will Comperl at Radio Free Jerome Studios in Long Island City, New York. My guest today was Stephanie McNulty of Franklin and Marshall College. Follow us on Twitter at Upset Patterns and visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash upsetpatterns.